All right, let's dive into Mark chapter 12. Uh, let me ask you a question as we start. Who carries the most authority in your life towards you? Who has the most authority over you in your life? The idea or concept of authority means someone who possesses power and control to influence or direct your choices, your actions, your words, etc. in your life. It's someone who has power or control to influence and direct you in the choices you make, in the words that you say, and how you carry yourself, and your actions, and, and your reactions and responses. And the reality is, uh, most of us, uh, probably all of us, have people in our lives who have some level of authority over us. Um, sometimes that person may change, or, or be this person for a season, or this person for a season. Uh, but, but there may even be someone who just their very presence around you has a level of authority that changes the way that you act when they're there. So who is it? Who carries the most authority over you in your life? Is it your spouse? Husbands, wives, is it your spouse? That when, when that person asks you to do something, that you, you do it? Or share something with you that they would like for you to do and you, you do it? Is it a boss? Is it a parent? And that's not just a possibility for children. But even as adults, our parents carry authority in our lives to influence and direct the things that we do. Especially if they're a parent who you honor and respect and love. I know my dad and I, if my dad calls me and asks uh, me to do something because of the respect and love that my dad and I have for one another, uh, he has influence, power to direct and control me in an appropriate manner. There's some level of authority that he has in my life. Sometimes it's people, so maybe it's, you think about this on a, on a scale. Uh, a police officer pulls you over, and by nature of their job, they have some authority over you. City councils, mayors, up all the way up the chain. There are people who exercise authority around us all over the place. Maybe you're a boss, and you're somebody who has authority over other people. But for us to consider today, who carries the most authority over you in your life? to direct, to guide, to influence, to command your choices, actions, words, how you carry yourself, what you do and what you don't do. You see, there's another question that plays really big into this question. There's another question that plays really big into this idea of people who have or someone who has authority in or over your life. And it's this question. Who do you believe Jesus is? You see, there's conversations Jesus has with his disciples. He has one, which isn't the passage we're in today, where he asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? He asks his disciples, hey, what's, the, what's, what's our culture saying about me? And then he says, so, so who do you say that I am? Not, not what's everybody else think, who do you say that I am? Again, that's not the passage we're looking at today, but the passage we look at today ties very closely to that. Specifically, asking around the question, not just who do you believe Jesus is, but, but who is the Christ, the Messiah? 
Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? What's the Messiah or the Christ supposed to be like? Or in this context, to put ourselves in the first century, what was the Christ supposed to be like? Who was the Christ supposed to be the Messiah? What was he supposed to be from or, or a part of? Or how was he supposed to act and all those things? You see, Jesus, we find ourselves in the story in Mark chapter 12, and, and he's had these back and forth conversations with the religious leaders. And he's kind of quieted them all. And they don't ask him any more questions. They've actually, he says in Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 34, that no one dared to ask him any more questions. Uh, and now Jesus, uh, having responded um, in a brilliant God-divine wisdom, turns the tables and now starts questioning them, but not directly. But more in a way that he's, he questions these religious leaders in such a way that causes the crowd, just FYI, the word throng means crowd or, or large group of people. We don't use that word. Large um, gathering or crowd of people. And so Jesus turns the questions um, about the Messiah, about God, about Christ, uh, back for the crowd to consider in correlation to these religious leaders who are just now trying to trap and ensnare and, and imprison and hopefully destroy Jesus. And so as the Gospel of Mark continues, it turns to this question. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? What is the Christ? What is the Messiah? You may be going, now, I don't know what the word Christ or Messiah means. Uh, we don't use that. We're Christians. We're not Jews. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. Or you may not have even known the word Messiah or Christ has something to do with Judaism. Uh, it does. And it has something to do deeply with our faith as Christians because we are a part of God's people from Old Testament to, to now. And so look with me in Mark chapter 12 at how Jesus seems to turn the table and be on offensive against these scribes who have been questioning him for the last handful of weeks. So here we go. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That's the question. How can the scribes, the pastors, the theologians, the Bible scholars say that the Christ the Messiah, the promised King who would come and establish the nation and kingdom of God's people that would never end, how can they say that the Christ is the Son of David? And the word Son of David, it literally means that he is a descendant of David. That David is his like 14 generations removed grandpa. If you want to see that, look at Matthew chapter 1. It tells you. 14 generations of from here to here, 14 generations from here to here, from David to Jesus, 14 generations. Verse 16, 36 says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great thronger crowd heard him gladly. So there's some things going on in here that can be challenging to like understand, especially Psalm 110 that we just looked at. It's got some odd language. Well, partially because it uses the same word multiple times, but it's actually a different word, which we'll get into. But Jesus is teaching in this moment, and he has a few different objectives in teaching on this particular passage to this crowd in the presence of these guys who've just been arguing with him, and he's quieted them. The first one is this. Jesus is revealing to us and to them that the Old Testament is the authoritative word of God, that it was written by men like David, and it was written inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, Psalm 110. 
cluing us into how God even wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit filling and empowering men to write the Scriptures. To reveal who God is to the world. So Jesus uh, trusts in and believes in the authority, inerrancy, and the accuracy of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, including the Old Testament. All of it. And these guys who Jesus is calling into question, the scribes, believe in the Old Testament. The second thing is that Jesus is pulling out here is that David, in Psalm 110, tells us some very important things about the Messiah. And Jesus wants us to hear these things. He wants us to, to see these things. He wants us to understand something about the Christ, the Messiah, that these scribes seem to have missed. And the third thing is Jesus has every intention in this moment to expose the wrong, false, or at the very least, inadequate teaching of the scribes. That he wants to expose them as theologically wrong. Correcting false teaching. And here's the deal. They did get some things right. Oftentimes it's that way with false teachers. There's something they got right and a whole lot they got wrong. And typically it's something pretty big. And so when we think about the idea of the Messiah or what Jesus, the question he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can the, the, the scribes, the religious teachers, say that he's the son of David? And, and, and they got this right. And Jesus is not denying that the promised Christ, the Messiah, Savior, Hosanna, who would come and establish the kingdom of God's people that would never end, that king, that, that Messiah, he is the son of David. He is. Uh, it's undeniable. He is the son of David. We'll get into that in a little bit. And so they got that right. But they stopped there. They stopped there. You see, in Psalm 110, this will be up on the screen. If you want to flip there, you can in your Bible. In Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2, it says this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. You see, Jesus takes this psalm that David wrote, Psalm 110, and he's teaching on it to the crowd. And there's some specific things that David says that clue us into uh, the scribes being right but insufficient in their understanding of who the Messiah would be. That yes, he will be the son of David. He will come from the lineage and line of David but so much more. And it's communicated even in just the way David addresses him. So, so it, it, you can't see this in the English because English is English. Uh, we, uh, you may get that. You may not. English is English. It's confusing, hard, and we have things that say one thing and mean, it, mean an entirely different thing. Uh, but in English, this says, the Lord says to my Lord. Uh, the actual Hebrew words there are, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Those are two different words. Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh is the sacred only used for God, God name of God. So uh, God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. And the word Adonai means Lord in Hebrew, as in like master. And so David's saying here, uh, he's saying, Yahweh God said to my Lord, and the 
whole psalm is talking about the king who would come later in the line of David, who would rule over all the nations, and his kingdom would never come to an end. So he's talking about this Messiah, and he both says, God says to my Lord, and in that David is saying that the Christ who would come is not just his heir, not just his in lineage, 14 generations later, grandson, but that he is his master, his Lord. See, when David wrote this psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was cluing us in uh, on something that the scribes missed. And that's that, yes, the Messiah is the son of David, but so much more than that, he is the master and Lord of David. And who alone is David's master and Lord? God. God. So David here is cluing us in to something about the Messiah that would come. That he's not only his descendant. He's his superior. He's his master. He's his Lord. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders the scribes, the the theologians, the pastors had a misunderstanding of Jesus. Or, well, a misunderstanding of the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. They got that he would come from the line of David. It's Isaiah 11, 1. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's a prophecy about the king who would come over the nation of God's people, who would rule and reign, and that he would come from Jesse's cut-down tree. Who's David's dad? Jesse. If you do Advent, which we encourage families to join and participate in, Advent's the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's a time where we at Trailview, we remember and rehearse the story of redemption from Genesis to Jesus. And David uh, has a significant point and part to play in that story. As the king, the the great king of the people of God, whose great-great-great-14-time grandson would be the king. But the Jewish leaders stopped there. They had a misunderstanding. Or at the very least, they had downgraded or missed what the Messiah was actually going to be. See, they believed the Messiah, the Christ, would be a political, national, military leader. And these people, these scribes, believed that he would come and he would run the Roman, uh, Romans out. He would defeat the Roman armies, he would run them out, he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, he would sit on a throne in Jerusalem and rule from the place that David ruled, and the people of God would be established forevermore. But they missed this essential part of the Messiah. The Messiah was not just the king they were looking for. The Messiah was before David. The Messiah was greater than than David. The Messiah was master over David. The Messiah held authority and control over David and all things. See, there was so much more to this new king who would come than just being the 14-time grandson of the greatest king of the nation of Israel. 
You see, the Jewish scribes and teachers had a misunderstanding and downgraded the Messiah, the Christ, to just being a distinct good king. The question for us is, have we done the same thing? Have we done the same thing? Have you done the same thing? When you consider Jesus, the king who we're beholding through the Gospel of Mark, have you downgraded or do you have a misunderstanding of what it means for him to be the Christ? Oftentimes, that, uh, which we'll dive into a little bit more in a little bit, we have a functional misunderstanding. We understand it in our minds. We understand it conceptually in our heads that Jesus is Adonai, Lord and King. But the functional disconnect is that it doesn't impact us in the way that we carry ourselves as Master and Lord over us. Like the Jewish leaders, I'm afraid oftentimes we find ourselves in the same place where we have downgraded Jesus from Lord Adonai to just a king. As Jesus exposes these shortcomings of the scribes, that they misunderstood who the Messiah would be, He also leads us towards correct understanding towards a correct understanding of the Messiah. You see, um, the Messiah was the offspring king that came from David. And the Messiah is Jesus. In Luke 2, 4-5, it says this. This will be up on the screen. This is the Christmas story. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That child being Jesus. The Jesus was from the lineage of David. In Matthew 3, God himself endorses Jesus as more than just the king who would come from the lineage of David. When Jesus is baptized, in, verse, in Matthew 3, 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descend, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised descendant of David, but he's so much more than that. He is the promised Son of God. Who came to establish the kingdom of God, to be Lord, Adonai, Master, and King. The New Testament continues to elaborate for us in perfect alignment with the Old Testament about who this Messiah would be. In Colossians three or one, Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen, it says this about Jesus. Is he just a king? just a man and is he just the one who would come from David's line in verse 15 it says he meaning Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he's the head of the body the church he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who is Jesus? So much more than just a king of the people of Israel. He is the very image of God. That in Him the full view of who God is can be seen. That's why we behold Jesus. Because when we behold Jesus, we see our God. That He is before all things. Before David, which is why David calls Him Lord. Like literally before. He created all things. He holds all things together. All things, including things that are not created, like thrones and dominions and rulers and kingdoms, are raised up and destroyed by Him. The fullness of God in man, Jesus. The theological term for this is hypostatic union. No, no, you may not care. It means that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's 200%. Math doesn't work that way. It does for Jesus. That he is 100% physical man and he is 100% God. Jesus. Much, much more than than just a king from David's family. Much, much more than just a king from David's family. All of this understanding of Jesus and His correction of the scribes and His unveiling of the Messiah, who He is, leading us to this one point for today. This is the the, the one point for this morning. We must submit to Jesus as King and Master. We must submit to Jesus as King and Master. The rest of our time this morning is just going to be exploring how. How do we submit to Jesus as our king, but so much more than just a king, our master? <coughs> the human race is bought into a lie, uh, and it's not a new lie. We think about it nowadays in a lot of ways, uh, especially in Texas, especially in America, the land of the free, home of the brave. Uh, oftentimes we, in, in American culture, we think of, uh, of us as the only, or, or, uh, the only real place where freedom exists in the world. People flock to our country because of the freedoms that we have available to us, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. Uh, but we oftentimes buy into a lie about that freedom. We buy into this lie that believes that delight, gladness, satisfaction, and joy that our souls long for comes from freedom and autonomy. We buy into this lie that the joy and delight that my soul hungers for, that I chase after in the world and all of its pleasures, comes from freedom and autonomy. And I'm not talking about political freedom and autonomy. I'm talking about personal freedom and autonomy. That we've bought into a lie that says, if I can just do whatever I want, 
I'll find delight and joy for my soul. If I can just have whatever I want, I'll find joy and delight in my life. If I can just have autonomy over my choices and my decisions in my life, I'll find joy and delight. If I could just have whoever I want, I'd find joy and delight. If I could just be whoever I want, then I would find joy and delight. If I could just have freedom and autonomy, my soul would be happy that I'd find delight. But if we're honest, uh, this isn't a new idea. It's as old as time. Chase back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent in the garden, said, God, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it my way. I want freedom and autonomy to go against God's one command, if I think it's good. You see this lie that delight comes from freedom and autonomy to do what you want, when you want, how you want it, with who you want, and however you want. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve <coughs> were tempted with in the garden. God, I'll do it my way, not your way. Yeah, generally, in our culture today, we function with a disposition that's uh, rejecting authority, if at best, suspicious of authority. But it's helpful for us to understand, under the, uh, under the main point, that we must submit to Jesus as our King and our Master, that our hearts are bent towards believing that our joy, our gladness, our salvation is found in freedom and autonomy to do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whoever I want. And identify that as a lie. As a foundational lie of the rebellion of our hearts against God Himself. The other thing that I want us to understand is this. The word Lord, the word Adonai that David uses in Psalm 10, 110, uh, we use all the time. You might even pray in your own prayers, Lord God, would you help me? Or things like that. And use the word Lord in reference to God. That we oftentimes find ourselves using this word Lord. And I'm afraid this happens naturally also because of just the way we are as human beings. A friend of mine and I, we used to always get into conversations, good, healthy, friendly conversations about semantics which is like, what do words actually mean? Uh, and here's the reality. Semantics matter. Like, what words mean matters. And those having a definitive objective definition matters. And so when we think of the word Lord, oftentimes I'm afraid, like Jesus here is our Lord. I, I, I said the word master. We must submit to Jesus as king and master. Uh, the word master, there's just a translation of the word Lord or Adonai. 
And I'm afraid oftentimes as Christians here today in the 21st century, uh, we've used the word Lord as just an honorary title for Jesus. Like it's, just, it's like professor so-and-so. The, the, the word Lord it looks more like an honorary title than an actual understanding of Jesus as Lord and submission to Him as Lord. Because the word Lord means master. The word Lord means one who has authority and control over another. Which goes square in the face of, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. So we use the language for Jesus as Lord and King, but the question for us is, do we actually apply that to our lives? Do we actually live with Him uh, as our Master? You see, the idea of Jesus as being our Lord and Master is more than just an honorary title. It actually means something. It's intended to mean something. More than a cute title or an honorary reference. It's meant to communicate a subordinate and superior, you subordinate, him superior position as master over your life. As the one who has authority and control over all of your life. Sometimes people who are not even Christians get this more than Christians do. People who, who aren't Christians, who, who push back on, are near, or, yeah, I believe in God, Jesus, God thing, yeah, but I just don't want Him to tell me how to live my life. What are they grasping in that moment? The idea of Jesus being Lord and Master, which means His way, His, his morals, His way of life, His truth, not my truth, if there was such a thing. That for us as Christians to live like David, to say, Yahweh said to my Lord and Master, God, Jesus the Messiah is your Master. It's so much more than a title. It's a position of authority and control over your life. And establish that for us so that we can come full circle back to the lie that we believe. We believe the lie that life comes, joy comes, delight comes from freedom and autonomy. And the whole concept of God, uh, just looks square at the face of that, uh, but the specific concept of Jesus as Master and Lord comes in to right the wrong belief of our heart to say, no, delight, gladness, joy, the life forevermore Jesus longs for you to have comes not from freedom and autonomy, but comes from submission. The life of delight and joy that He would have for you, His son or daughter, by faith in Jesus, is a life of submission. Not of freedom and autonomy, but a life of submission to Jesus as Master and Lord. That the life of delight that your soul longs for, Christian, it's not one of doing things your own way, having things your way, but one of submission to Jesus. Glad submission. 
giving him total authority and control over your life. You no longer being captain of your fate and master of your destiny. This is what it means for Jesus to be Lord. It means that he is master. And anything short of that is the misuse of the word at best. Or total misunderstanding of Jesus at worst. See, this idea of Jesus as Lord is throughout the entirety of the Bible, so much that Paul uses some very strong words to describe himself that we oftentimes in our 21st century culture are very afraid of using. In Romans 1.1, Paul says this, describing himself, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The word servant there in, in Romans 1 is the word slave. It's the word slave. It's the word bondservant. You see, the Bible's not saying here or endorsing slavery of other people as something that's good. It's absolutely not. It's evil and it's wrong in every sense of the way. Slavery of another human being is definitively evil. But submitting yourself to God as bondservant, as Jesus as your master, is the best thing that you can do in your life, for all of your life. The idea of bondservant is somebody who, who chooses to be the slave of someone. And for us to submit to Jesus as Lord in faith, uh, coming to Him, it means to submit, to choose to be His slave. To be forever his bond servant. Like I said, it's the best thing that you can do with your life. To submit to Jesus as master of your time. What would it look like? To submit to Jesus as master. These are all things Jesus cares a lot about, by the way. To submit to Jesus as your master and your priorities. Or maybe to have priorities. To submit to Jesus as master of your sleep schedule. Ha! So what? Show me that in the Bible. <laughs> he cares about all of you. To submit to Jesus as master with regards to your family, your extracurricular activities, the rhythms, the activities that you do or don't do, or how you do them. To submit to Jesus as master in your marriage. To do marriage the way of Jesus. Nobody else's way, not your way as husband, not her way as wife, but the way of Jesus. To submit to Jesus as master in your singleness. To do singleness the way of Jesus. Not your way, not the way of the world, but the way of Jesus. To submit to Jesus in your sexuality. To submit to Jesus in your sexuality means to enjoy sex in the context of the sacred covenant of marriage between one man and one woman and all the goodness that it is. 
and to believe and live as he says that deviation from that is sin and destructive in all parts and ways. To submit to Jesus in your work as master. To do everything as if you are doing it for the Lord. Jesus, the master. Not your boss, not your employer, not your customers. Not your employees. But to do your work with Jesus as your master. And here's the beautiful part. Like I said, we live with a little bit of a suspicious or rejection posture towards authority, towards people being Lord or master over. To live like this under the authority of Jesus as king and master is good. Here's how 2 Samuel, these are the last words of David, ironically. The last words of David, the greatest king to ever lead the nation of Israel. In Samuel, first, 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4, it says this. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, <coughs> he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Authority that's just and in the fear of the Lord is something that we should gladly submit to because it produces peace, fruitfulness, and life to those under it. And there's no one in all of the universe whose authority is not more for your good, joy, and delight than God's. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's our King, but He is so much more than that. He's our Master and Lord. And as our Lord, we must submit to Him as Master. It's for your, His glory, for your joy, for the spread of the Gospel to the lost in our world, that we live in glad submission to Jesus as our King and our Master. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for establishing your kingdom that will never end. And establishing it in Jesus, your Son, whom you gave to us as a sacrifice that we might find forgiveness of sin. And God, we thank you that Jesus is so much more than just a king for a nation, but he is our Savior. He is our Master and He is our Lord and all that He is at work doing in us. That You speaking by the power of Your Holy Spirit through Your Word this morning to guide and direct in Your authority as God is to guide us into submission to Jesus as our Master for our good, for Your glory. So Jesus, in this moment, would You speak? And we give You uh, permission <laughs> as if we, You needed it. Uh, to have your way as master and Lord. To say what you need to say that we need to hear. 
Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to receive the correction that we need? To believe what we need to believe, to repent where we need to repent, to confess where we have fallen short. God, would you lead and guide us to be a people who gladly submit to Jesus as our King and Master in every area of our life. 